Now we turn our attention to a text which calls us to worship, Psalm 133. William, would you please take turns reading this with me? Psalms 133, the New International Version. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard. Running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. forevermore. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Amen. Bob, would you please come and teach us? Well, good morning. Um, as Eugene mentioned, I do serve multiple purposes here. And uh, one thing that I'm glad I made sure of, when you're multi-purpose, you have to make sure you're picking up the right thing at the right time. And uh, so I made sure I brought my sermon this morning instead of a financial update. So you will not hear uh, finances, though we were ready with the orange buckets, just in case. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to those of you who are dads uh, and to those who may be watching online. Um, the, there's something about being a dad which is really precious. Um, it, it's hard to describe. I, I just remember those first moments after the birth of each of our kids. And uh, you're in the hospital and I know in my dad's generation, the dads were not present when kids were born. But it was such a joy to be there when, each, when Rose delivered each of our children. And I remember that incredible moment each time when you're handed your baby to hold. And for the first time you're holding the baby. And you're just looking down into their faces. And in that moment, it's almost as if you see their entire lives flash before your eyes and you're imagining what they're going to be like growing up. You imagine what they're going to be like, where they're going to go to school, if they go to school, what they're gonna do for a living. And I just remember even thinking in those moments, I really didn't care what my kids grew up to be as long as they were godly men and women. 
That was really all that mattered. I wanted them to be men and women of character, whether they're a rocket scientist or something else. It really didn't matter. Um, it's a joy to now see my two sons being dads themselves. And so happy Father's Day to you guys, because I know you're going to be looking at the live stream later on. Um, Father's Day celebrations have always been special. I mean, the early ones, yeah, mom is doing most of the celebrating. The, the kids are so young, they're just showing up. But um, then they get older and they become more active participants. And I remember the first Father's Day where our oldest son uh, had a bigger role. And Rose must have done a lot of reminding that the next day was Father's Day, and so the first thing he needed to do was, when he, after he got up, was come and tell me Happy Father's Day. And sure enough, he followed orders down to the letter. Uh, he woke up, came into our bedroom, uh, tapped on me to wake me up, and joyfully announced Happy Father's Day. Uh, it took me a moment to open my eyes, and when I did, I saw this little guy with a green glow on his face from the digital display on our clock radio, which uh, rudely awakened me to the fact that it was just after three in the morning. <laughs> I thanked him, and as I tucked him back into bed, uh, I, I told him we'd have more fun later in the day. As tiny as our children are at birth and when they wake you up at three in the morning, they do eventually grow up. And all three of our kids went to school out of state. And around this time every year, Facebook, which I joined purposely to keep track of our kids as they went off to school, uh, dutifully reminds me with those little memory emails that you get, uh, reminds me of our daughter's homecomings each summer from college. I obviously had this habit of taking pictures of her after she had descended the escalator down into the baggage claim area at Salt Lake Airport. And I was just so excited to see her, I posted those online. And those were always great homecomings. It was always fun. I, the joy of seeing her come down that escalator, whether it was at Christmas or at the end of the school year, it was just always good to see her again. Um, I had a peculiar homecoming once of my own. Uh, it was the first year I was out of college. It was Christmas time. I was going back east to see my parents. And uh, I probably didn't do as good a job as I could have of reminding my parents that I had grown a beard since they had last seen me. So I stepped off the train into a cold New England night and dad must have seen a complete stranger down the platform who looked more like I used to than I currently did. And uh, thankfully, mom saved the day, and she called out to my dad, and despite that minor hiccup at the start, we had a great visit, and uh, I made sure I shaved off my beard and left only the mustache the next time I came home. Now, our text this morning, Paul's letter to Philemon, is part of a homecoming story. As Eugene shared last week, as he went down the list of folks named at the end of Colossians, there were two couriers tasked with, the, with carrying the letter from where Paul was under house arrest, likely in the city of Rome, back to Philemon in Colossae. 
The first, Tychicus, served as Paul's envoy on various occasions and is described by Paul in Colossians as a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord, and he would have been a welcome guest. The other messenger, Onesimus, is described by Paul as being one of you, one of the Colossians. He was from Colossae, and the folks in Colossae did not need a reminder of that. The fact that Paul describes him as our faithful and dear brother probably had their heads scratching too. Onesimus had been Philemon's slave, but had run away. And he somehow crossed paths with the captive apostle Paul. So in addition to having written the letter to the church that was meeting in Philemon's house, which Eugene had taken us through, Paul wrote a personal note to Philemon, knowing this would not be a fairy tale homecoming. We'll get to some more background information as we go along, but for now, I'd like to read the entire letter. And as I do, try to picture in your mind how the scene is unfolding as Philemon reads this letter delivered to him by his runaway slave. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although I could, in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. 
And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Now, if it feels like we just open a personal letter, we did. This letter, which is the shortest one we have in Paul, only 335 words long, was the only one not written to a church or a church leader in which Paul would be passing along instruction or doctrine. Rather, it was written to address a personal issue involving Philemon and Onesimus that Paul became aware of through his connection with Onesimus. How Onesimus, a runaway slave, and Paul under house arrest connected in Rome, far away from Colossae, is one of those we'll find out in heaven questions. What we do know is that Onesimus came to faith in Jesus as a result of his relationship with Paul, and Paul subsequently de developed a strong affection towards Onesimus. He describes him as someone who became my son while I was in chains. He calls him his very heart and someone who's very dear to me. So that's Onesimus. Meanwhile, back in Colossae, we have Philemon, likely a person with some wealth as evidenced by the fact that he had slaves in his household and his home was large enough to host a house church. Paul affirms Philemon for his faith in the Lord Jesus and his love for all the saints. And he goes on to say how encouraged he has been by how Philemon's love has refreshed the hearts of the saints and the angry times that seem to surround us in 2023, we'd all be blessed by having more Philemons around. What led to Onesimus making the decision to run away from Philemon's household isn't clear from the text, though many take Paul's offer to pay back Philemon for any damages as a possible indication that Onesimus may have stolen money or possessions from Philemon in order to bankroll this fugitive journey he took to Rome. But the word if at the beginning of verse 18 makes some kind of offense less certain, or that would have been the logical place in the letter where Paul would have mentioned it. At the very least, Onesimus had become useless to his slave, as a slave to his master Philemon, a statement which carried a bit of irony given the meaning behind the name Onesimus. It was a common nickname for a slave, and it meant useful, beneficial, or profitable. So you could almost imagine verse 11 saying, formerly useful was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. So how had Onesimus become useful to Paul? Paul tells us in verse 13 that Onesimus had been a help to him during his time in chains for the gospel, comparing his assistance to that which he knew Philemon would have been offering if Philemon had been the one present with him in Rome instead of Onesimus. So here's Paul in chains in Rome, serving as the link between two estranged men, Philemon, a slave master, and Onesimus, his runaway slave, both of, whom, both of whom came to faith through Paul's ministry. So what could Paul possibly write to Philemon and it would be something that Onesimus would be aware of as well. 
while the letter doesn't describe Paul's thought process, the nature of the master-slave relationship had to be on Paul's mind. In plain and simple terms, Onesimus was a runaway slave, the property of Philemon. Slave owners had the right to do whatever they pleased with their slaves. Slaves were not persons with any rights. Absolute control over the estimated 60 million slaves was viewed as essential for the societal and economic order in the Roman Empire. The punishment facing a fugitive slave could be severe, even to the point of death. So Onesimus's fate, if he were to return to Philemon, was uncertain. So Paul wrote the letter we have, and we'll briefly take note of what Paul says and also what he doesn't say. The greeting to the letter tips us off to the fact that Paul isn't out to leverage his apostleship on Philemon. Rather, in both verses one and nine, Paul describes himself not as an apostle, but as a prisoner. And in another expression of his weakness in verse nine, he describes himself as an old man, something I never used to relate to, but now something I can understand. And rather than giving an order on the basis of his authority as an apostle, which Paul did not hesitate to claim in other letters, here he makes an appeal in verse nine on the basis of love. Paul explains that he would have liked to have kept Onesimus there with him, but instead was sending him back to Philemon, explaining that he didn't want to do anything without Philemon's consent. Essentially a nod to the fact that Philemon had legal authority and total control over Onesimus. And he didn't, he, he didn't want to do things without Philemon's consent so that any favor Philemon did would be spontaneous and not forced. Paul doesn't take advantage of his authority as an apostle to order Philemon. He refuses to treat Philemon as his own slave. Paul saw himself and Philemon as brothers in Christ. So coercion wasn't an option, but friendly persuasion was. Paul repeatedly points out to Philemon the transformation that has taken place in Onesimus because of the relationship that's been reconciled between Onesimus and God. In verse 11, Paul says, formerly he was useless, but now he's become useful, both to you and to me. In verses 15 and 16, he says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that he, you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. And in verse 16, he's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. While Paul emphasized the spiritual transformation and the open door to reconciliation between the master and his fugitive slave made possible through both of them having come to faith in Jesus, Paul's appeal to Philemon on the basis of love also left the door open for Paul to be misunderstood by some in the 2,000 years since he wrote this letter. How could Paul have sent Onesimus back to his master? Why didn't Paul seize this opportunity to clearly condemn the practice of slavery? And by his actions on the one hand and his silence on the other, was Paul tacitly endorsing the practice of slavery? 
Some have tried to explain this away by stating that slavery in the Roman Empire was somehow a kinder, gentler institution, not based on race. And while some household slaves may indeed have been treated fairly, many more were treated savagely, as if their lives were expendable, which they ultimately were in a manner similar to the slavery that existed in our country for hundreds of years, which we as a nation are mindful of this weekend with the Juneteenth holiday tomorrow. Why didn't the Holy Spirit prompt Paul to speak out clearly against all slavery once and for all? Paul could have addressed the moral issue of the institution of slavery, but instead he was focused on the core spiritual issue of Philemon's relationship with Onesimus. His hope was that the eyes of Philemon's heart would be open to see that even though the legal basis of their relationship may still have been master-slave, the deeper eternal basis of their relationship was as one brother to another. If that fundamental recalibration could take place, the master-slave basis would crumble into dust to be blown away by the breath of the Holy Spirit. Paul's target wasn't a human institution, but rather the far more elusive target of the human heart. That doesn't excuse us as Christians from the call in Micah 6a to act justly and commit ourselves to social justice in our community and around the world. But the need of the moment, as this letter was being read in Philemon's house one day in the mid-60s AD, was a heart change in the way Philemon looked at Onesimus, no longer as a slave, though the law was clearly on his side, but as a brother standing alongside him at the foot of the cross where Jesus had died for both of them. The Lord will always honor our practical efforts to rescue and free those in slavery and to speak out against ish, on issues of justice, but we should also be praying that the Spirit will soften the hardened hearts of those who view human beings as property to be owned and open their eyes to see others as fellow image bearers of God who are so precious to their heavenly Father that he would redeem, their, redeem them for eternity at the cost of his son, Jesus. That was what was at stake as Philemon looked at Onesimus. So begins verse 17, if you, Philemon, consider me as a partner, welcome him, Onesimus, as you would welcome me. That seems simple enough, but for Philemon, welcoming Onesimus as he would Paul was no small ask. Reconciliation comes with a cost. And just as our reconciliation with God comes at the cost Jesus paid at the cross, the reconciliation between, uh, the reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus would have a cost associated with it as well. Philemon had already lost the services Onesimus would have provided as a slave, and there was still the matter of whether Onesimus had indeed stolen any money or possessions, or if the original reason Onesimus was a slave was because of an unpaid debt. Lest Philemon think that Paul had given Onesimus a get-out-of-jail-free card, in verses 18 and 19, Paul tells Philemon to put those charges on Paul's account but also reminds Philemon, perhaps with a wink in his eye, that he owed his own life as a believer in Jesus to Paul's ministry. 
and Paul was currently in chains because of his boldness in sharing the gospel, part of the overall cost of Philemon's reconciliation with God. Just as Philemon had refreshed those in his church, Paul looks forward to being refreshed from a distance as well, confident that Philemon will, on his own volition, go above and beyond the appeal that Paul was making. And you can imagine another twink in Paul's eye when he was writing verse 22, asking Philemon to prepare a guest room for his own hopeful visit. Could he have just been dropping a not so subtle hint that Onesimus should be invited to stay in the guest room with Tychicus and not just go back to his old room in the slave quarters? But there was another challenge that Philemon would be facing by welcoming Onesimus back. There were many eyes in Colossae that would be watching how Philemon would respond to Onesimus' return. The reconciliation of a fugitive slave with his master as brothers in Christ would definitely upset the accustomed order. Any other slaves Philemon may have owned would be taking notes, as would be the masters and slaves who may have been in the church that met in Philemon's house as would be other masters and slaves in Colossae outside of the faith community. And they would all be asking questions beginning with words such as why and how. And just as Paul reminded the Colossians at the beginning of chapter four of, this, of that letter, this would become an open door, an opportunity to be taken advantage of for conversations full of grace seasoned with salt, as it were, in answering everyone's questions about that transformation by the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. I imagine Philemon got plenty of opportunities to echo Paul's word from Colossians 3.11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, while the element of surprise surely came into play when Philemon saw Onesimus at his front door, Onesimus would have had the entire journey back from Rome, retracing the route of his getaway all the way back to Colossae and to Philemon's door to think about this whole process. And while reconciliation was a big ask of Philemon, it was an even bigger ask of Onesimus. When he arrived at Colossae, he would be facing the consequences of his actions. And in the master-slave relationship, Philemon could mete out whatever punishment he saw fit, perhaps to make an example of Onesimus and to assuage the fears of the other slave owners in Colossae. He may have wondered why Paul was only appealing to Philemon on the basis of love while he himself was being sent by Paul essentially affirming Philemon's ownership of him. Paul had promised Philemon that he'd pay any debts or damages, but what good was the promise of an old man sitting in house arrest back in Rome? Anasimus probably saw himself as the pig and Philemon as the chicken in the preparation of a bacon and egg breakfast. Both were participants, but Anasimus obviously had more skin in the game. He had to have wondered if all this was really a good idea on Paul's part. Surely Paul could have just done all this by email, couldn't he? And any happy ending 
would depend on whether this gospel had the same radical impact on Philemon as it had had on Onesimus himself. Could he really count on that? And I suspect as they got closer to Colossae, he may have wondered if there was still time to run away once again and head back to Rome, this time making sure that he didn't run into Paul or any of his associates. I find it fascinating that God has preserved this short, personal, and often passed over letter from Paul in our scriptures, yet it's no wonder. The story of two seemingly irreconcilable individuals being brought together by the Apostle Paul to be reconciled with each other is something we desperately need to learn from. It's one thing to talk about forgiveness and reconciliation as the abstract. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but are we totally convinced that he died for the sins of that believer with whom I'm having an issue? Can't I continue to hold at least some of those sins against him? Can't I keep just a tiny bit of a grudge? And for sure, I can recognize that God is always at work transforming me by the renewing of my mind, as Paul writes in Romans 12, and as everyone around me can clearly see, but that other person seems to be stuck in a rut and has been for years. How could Paul have seriously thought this experiment of sending Onesimus back to Philemon would work out well? Perhaps one reason was that Paul had experienced reconciliation firsthand soon after his conversion years earlier. As Stephen was being stoned in Acts 7, we're told of the young man named Saul giving approval for Stephen's death. Then in Acts 9, while on the road to Damascus in order to take Christians as prisoners and bring them back to Jerusalem, Paul, or Saul has an encounter with Jesus blinded by a light from heaven and taken to a house in Damascus. The Lord appears to a believer named Ananias, telling him where Saul can be found so Ananias can go to Saul and place his hands on the eyes to restore sight. Ananias tells the Lord of all the reports he's heard about Saul's persecution of believers in Jerusalem and of the harm that Saul was intending to inflict on the saints in Damascus. The Lord assured Ananias that he had a plan for how Saul would be used to spread the gospel. When Ananias finally comes to Saul, the first words Ananias says, the first words that Saul hears were brother Saul. There wasn't a litany of everything that Saul needed to be forgiven of. It was simply brother Saul. That was the greeting. Years later, the same man, now called Paul, himself an old man and a prisoner, is giving Philemon the opportunity to say, Brother Onesimus, and for Onesimus to say, Brother Philemon. But beyond Paul's personal experience in Damascus and our scripture reading this morning, Paul reminded the church in Corinth of the amazing good news of reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And while that's tremendous news for each of us personally, we've been reconciled to God, it also means that, it also means that all, put that in bold and underline it, 
all who are in Christ have been reconciled with God. Because of the vertical reconciliation with God that has taken place, the horizontal door for reconciliation between believers has been thrown wide open for each of us to walk through. John 13.35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And for sure, as the word got out about the reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon, the only way to explain it would ultimately boil down to the single word, Jesus. And if we find ourselves questioning why our attempts to share the gospel seem to be fruitless, not only in our communities, but with those we're close to, those who see us up close and personal for who we really are, Could it be in part because they don't see our love for our fellow believers? Rather, by our words and deeds, we just seem to blend into the background of anger in our society. For myself, I've found God repeatedly using our Good Friday services over the years to remind me of this great reconciliation. The sight of everyone waiting in line to leave their nail at the cross and then take communion reminds me of who we all are in Christ and our common standing before him. God has often used those evenings to bring people to my mind in our church family where there may be some sort of estrangement or distance, people that I'll want to avoid making eye contact with, people with whom there's some unresolved issue. And though the the lights in our auditorium that evening will be dimmed, it's as if the light has been turned on in my heart to see that God, through what Jesus did on the cross, has thrown open the doors between us wide open, and there's an urgency to act, as Jesus described in Matthew 5. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I find that if I don't act on those God nudgings quickly, my mind starts telling me what a foolish idea it was. I go back to all the reasons I had used before to justify my not doing anything, and I end up slipping back into business as usual. In our text today, Paul wanted to make sure he did everything he could to persuade both Philemon and Onesimus to meet in person at that open door so that opportunity would not slip away. I love the way N.T. Wright stated it in his commentary. It's always interesting to look at commentaries on Colossians and Philemon. They're often in the same book. And Colossians takes up maybe this much space and Philemon gets like a tiny little space. N.T. Wright wrote, Here, at the climax of the letter, we witness nothing less than the radical application of the doctrine of justification to everyday living. No Christian has a right to refuse a welcome to one whom God has welcomed. Faith in Christ, the basis of justification, is the basis also of koinonia. Justification by faith must result in fellowship by faith. 
This latter means the settled determination to share fully in mutual fellowship with all those who share the faith, however awkward or angular or muddled or misguided or simply different they may be or appear to be. It's a powerful word. But is this all possible? Or was it just a bunch of wishful thinking on Paul's part? Unfortunately, we have only this letter. We don't get the rest of the story. I don't generally like movie sequels, but I would have loved to have seen Philemon 2. And just as there's much conjecture about the circumstances that led up to this letter, there are many guesses as to its aftermath, but perhaps the best evidence that the relationship by Philemon and Onesimus was indeed transformed, that reconciliation did take place, that that recalibration from master-slave to brother-brother took place, is that we have Paul's letter in our scriptures today. If this message had fallen on deaf ears or hard hearts, the scroll likely would have been burned in the fire used to prepare the next day's meal 2,000 years ago. And so it's entirely appropriate that we come to the Lord's table to take communion together this morning. I mentioned a few moments ago that as word got out about what happened between Philemon and Onesimus, the only way to explain it would be to share about Jesus and what took place at the cross. And these elements are a reminder, are a visual reminder of the cost that Jesus paid to reconcile us to God and make reconciliation possible with each other. Perhaps you find yourself estranged from God this morning, uncertain of how he might respond if you were to knock on his door. These elements are a reminder that he's already been knocking at your door, waiting for you to welcome him in. The trip to your door was expensive. It cost him his son, but you are infinitely worth it. Or perhaps the Lord has put someone on your heart this morning, maybe someone in your family, maybe it's the person sitting next to you this morning. Or perhaps it's someone here this morning, but you came at 10.30 because you knew they would be at 8.30. Or you're, perhaps you're sitting on this side of the auditorium this morning because that person is sitting on that side of the auditorium. Or perhaps it's someone you once shared life with, either here or at another church, but something happened and now you're here and they're someplace else because it would simply be too awkward for both of you to be here this morning. And I know there are people who the Lord has impressed upon my heart as I've spent time preparing for this morning. And I need the Lord's wisdom as to what my next steps should be with those folks. These elements are a reminder that Jesus in opening the door for us to come home to the Father has opened all the doors to our brothers and sisters. So before we partake of communion, I'd, I'd ask you to hold the packet in your hand, look at the price that has already been paid, and let's take a few moments of silent prayer to ask the Lord to show each of us 
what journey of reconciliation he might be inviting us to embark on this morning. Let's pray. Brothers and sisters, and I don't use that phrase lightly because if you are in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. The journey of reconciliation with others can be long and difficult. It can be intimidating and at times will even seem foolish, if not impossible. Yet it's a journey along a path that has already been cleared for us by what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And the Spirit has been given to us to provide us with the strength we'll need along the way. It's a journey where it may be helpful to have someone with you. It was no mistake that Onesimus had Tychicus to talk to on the road back to Colossae. And Philemon had his wife, Aphia, Archippus, and his entire house church to encourage him. And if you feel the Lord calling you to reach out to someone this morning, or if there's anything else you'd like prayer for, there'll be folks here at the front left of the auditorium that would love to meet with you. May God fill us all with his grace and peace as we venture out this week in our calling as ambassadors of his. Amen. Happy Father's Day. And there are lots of donuts outside. <laughs>